see you this morning as we open God's word together. Uh, Father, thank you for your word to us and to please help uh, me to speak clearly, uh, help us all to set aside uh, whatever might be distracting us or, or concerns that we have uh, so that we might listen to what you have to say to us here this morning and be encouraged and challenged in turn. Amen. Uh, there's something I find compelling about stories of missed opportunity. It's one of the lines I can just kind of keep hearing again and again, even though it follows basically the same formula. You know, party X has developed something new. Party Y has the opportunity to invest but declines and misses out on the opportunity of a lifetime. Um, particularly, I, I always find it amusing when the declined offer uh, results in party Y, you know, really going downhill. So just looking at you, we, we'll all remember, you know, the, the age of the early 2000s and uh, having to go out to rent a DVD. Uh, back in the year 2000, Blockbuster Video dominated the movie rental market. At its peak, they had 9,094 stores worldwide. On the other hand, Netflix was a struggling online mail-order company, and the Netflix CEO actually offered to sell Netflix to Blockbuster Video and was laughed out of the room. Of course, Netflix was able to find its feet, and we all stopped going out to rent DVDs. Uh, now there is only one Blockbuster Video store left in the world uh, in Portland, Oregon. Uh, you know, a little tourist attraction if you ever find yourself there. But of course, this is not just a recent phenomenon, even though this tends to happen a lot uh, in tech, the tech industry, as an, another example. But even in 1876, uh, the Western Union dominated the American telegraph industry. But when Alexander Graham Bell, the inventor of the telephone, approached them about commercialising his new invention, Western Union described the idea as idiotic. Idiotic. Who would want to invest in such a stupid idea? And of course, as phones proliferated, the telegraph declined and Western Union eventually withdrew from the communication services game. And of course, it's easy to look back from the future and, you know, shake our heads in wonder and bemusement. But, you know, things that change the world, they change the world. Uh, you know, if all you have to go on making your decisions uh, now is, well, how things exist around us, Pursuing something that's just so different, uh, something that pushes you to change the way that you operate, which has up until now been pretty successful, uh, it can seem foolish. I mean, how can you know an opportunity is worth taking hold of? You know, for every iPod, there's a Microsoft Zune. What opportunities are worth taking hold of? And as we look at 2 Corinthians this morning, uh, Paul is urging the Corinthians to live in light of the world-changing reality of the gospel. Uh, we've been seeing over these two chapters that we've been looking at in this uh, mini-series over the last few weeks uh, that the gospel has reshaped Paul and his life. And while it should have done the same for the Corinthians, uh, it's kind of stalled. Uh, they're still operating in many ways as if they hadn't accepted the gospel. They continue to value things that the world values rather than what God values. Looking more impressive seems to be more important than actually a changed heart that loves God and his ways. Uh, Paul has been showing the Corinthians, though, how his faith, uh, it means uh, that he does not lose heart, that it means he can have confidence in a life that is shaped by the gospel. And this morning we get to his urgent plea to the Corinthians. Be reconciled to God. Do not receive God's grace in vain. And it's kind of surprising because this appeal, this urgent appeal is, isn't to, uh, to pagans, it's to Christians, to people who have been Christians at this point for at least a few years. 
But Paul exhorts them, he implores them, don't receive God's grace in vain. Only eight verses, but it's a part of the Bible that's quite dense, and so we're going to be uh, trying to unpack it carefully uh, to see what Paul is saying, to see the solid foundation that the Corinthians have to live their lives uh, in in a gospel-shaped way. And as we do it, it's also going to raise the question, uh, could we have received God's grace in vain? Uh, So that's what we're looking at this morning. Uh, We're going to do it in three points. Uh, First, people of the new creation, then God's work of reconciliation, and finally, an urgent and official appeal. Uh, It is a little bit dense, uh, and so as we uh, untease it, though, it should all come back together uh, to see just the hope and the certainty that we can have in the gospel. Uh, So first off, people of the new creation. Verse 16, uh, Paul says, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Uh, Paul's uh, attitude to people is shaped by what Jesus has done. Last week, uh, the passage we were looking at in verses 14 to 15, we saw that one of the things that compelled Paul in how he lived his life was the love of Christ. And Paul holds on to this idea as we move into verse 16. So, because of the love of Christ who died in our place, Paul no longer regards people from a worldly point of view. And he gets even more specific into how these ideas are related in the back half of the verse. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. See, Paul used to regard Jesus in worldly terms. Uh, and we can see Paul's worldly understanding of Jesus recorded in the book of Acts that Pete read out for us earlier. Uh, Paul worked tirelessly to try and stop the spread of Christianity, to try and stop the idea that Jesus was God's king. But one day on a trip from Jerusalem to Damascus, where he was planning on uh, catching and locking up the local Christians, Paul met the risen Lord Jesus. Jesus was not a dead fraud, Paul learnt. Paul's understanding of who Jesus was was transformed. He was transformed by the gospel. He went from persecutor to proclaimer. And we've seen now how Paul regards Jesus. Just in these two chapters, uh, we've heard that Paul says Christ is the image of God, chapter 4, verse 4. That God's glory is displayed in the face of Christ, chapter 4, verse 6. That the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus, 4.14. And we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, chapter 5, verse 10. It's a pretty big change to go from dead fraud to God in the flesh, but the gospel has changed how Paul understands Jesus. Paul's understanding of who Christ is was transformed, and that transformed his understanding of people. Verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. If anyone is in Christ, the new creation is the thing that defines them. That's what shapes how Paul relates to them. Uh, Now, this is going to be a little bit of a sidebar for now, but it's worth teasing out because it'll be relevant a few points as uh, as we go through the passage. One of the ways that the Bible teaches about how to understand the work of Jesus and how it impacts us is the idea of union with Christ. The idea is that when we trust that Jesus is God's king who died for us, Our trust unites us to Jesus, and being united with Jesus means the benefits of of all that he has achieved are given to us. Uh, 
union with Christ, it's a little bit like a marriage union. You know, marriages are also built on faith, that is, trust in the other person and the promises that they make on their wedding day. In fact, part of our church's marriage service, it says marriage is a lifelong union in which a man and a woman are, so, are called to so give themselves in body, mind and spirit and so to respond that from their union will grow a deepening knowledge and love of each other. In the soys and joros of life, in prosperity and adversity, they share their companionship, faithfulness and strength. Marriage is a union built on trust and it shapes your relationship. And actually what becomes what belongs to one becomes the property of another. Uh, similarly, when we're united to Christ by faith, we gain the benefits of what he has done. Uh, so when verse 17, when Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, united with Christ, the new creation has come, uh, he's saying the new creation that is, was ushered in by Jesus uh, changes them. It changes how Paul or, or anyone else in Christ regards them. Paul no longer regards people according to a worldly point of view, but according to the new creation, because in Christ, he's part of the new creation. There's great discussion that we could have about the outworkings of this in terms of how we relate to each other and to other people, but we're focusing on this passage, and Paul has a particular point that he's going to keep drilling down into. God's work of reconciliation, verse 18 and 19. That's our, our second point for today. Paul wants us to consider how this new state of being came about. It required reconciliation. Like Ed said before, reconciliation is hard. A return to harmonious relationships between two parties who've been alienated from each other, it's hard. Removing the barriers takes great effort. It's hard enough when it involves just two individuals who are both committed to the process. The ongoing challenge of reconciliation between Australia's First Nations people and later arrivals to these shores just give us a sense of how much harder reconciliation is when it involves more and more people. But when the alienation that exists between a holy God and all of humanity is what's in focus, well, it's an impossible problem because our sin is incompatible with God's holiness. The problem of sin isn't just that we've done wrong things, though we have done wrong things. It goes to our very hearts. While we were made for God's goodness and to reflect his glory, we, we don't love him or his ways. Our very nature is turned away from God. And at the same time, God is holy. Part of that holiness is his purity. And such is the nature of God's holiness, it obliterates sin. We can't be in his presence or we will be destroyed. So sin has alienated us from God, but God has overcome the impossible problem. Verse 18, God has reconciled himself, uh, us to himself through Christ. And it's so significant to Paul's message that he repeats it again in verse 19. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. Just three things to note there. Firstly, reconciliation is God's work. God has removed the barrier that kept us alienated and unable to share in the harmonious and peaceful relationships with him that bring us into the new creation. God does it all. Second, God has achieved reconciliation with the world in Christ. Again, note that union language. Uh, sin, the barrier that has left us alienated with God, preventing relationship, it's now somehow 
been dealt with in Christ. Finally, it's a finished work. Reconciliation between God and the world has happened. The barrier has been removed. God has reconciled us to himself in Christ. Peaceful, harmonious relationships with God have been restored. But there's another part of reconciliation that Paul draws our attention to. He says, God gave us the ministry of reconciliation. He's committed to us the message of reconciliation. Again, in verse 19, he says it again twice. The news of reconciliation, it's a message that needs to be proclaimed. If reconciliation with God is only possible through trusting Jesus, people need to hear the message. And a messenger is exactly what God has provided in Paul. Uh, Paul's the one that God set apart and sent to proclaim the message of reconciliation. And uh, that leads us to Paul's urgent and official appeal. Is our last point, uh, point three. Paul makes his official and urgent appeal. Um, I guess it's actually uh, uh, his urgent official appeal. Urgent official appeal sounds better, but the order is official and urgent appeal. So anyway, we're looking at the official bit first. Uh, he says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Paul was given the message of reconciliation by God so he can rightly proclaim the, claim the title of ambassador. He's effectively God's mouthpiece. Paul urges the Corinthians on behalf of Christ be reconciled. But he doesn't stop there. He drills down even deeper to help the Corinthians see the confidence that they have in being reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In verse 18, that we looked at a moment ago, Paul noted that sin, the barrier, it was somehow dealt with in Christ. And here in verse 21, he spells out how that's happened. And it comes back to that union with Christ idea that we've noted a couple of times already. You know, we noted that a marriage union can result in some things being transferred from one spouse to another. Uh, you know, I'm told, for example, when English aristocracy marry, the title will transfer to the spouse. You know, if you were to marry a duke, you would become a duchess, whatever your rank or lack thereof prior to marriage. God made Jesus sin for us. Uh, the death penalty that sin brings about was paid for by Jesus on the cross as our sin is transferred to Jesus. God's removal of our sin, it's not some legal fiction. It's not God turning a blind eye to our sin. No, when we trust in Jesus, we are united to Christ and he takes on our sin. And at the same time, his righteousness, his perfect faithfulness to God is transferred to us. Do you see what God has done to reconcile us to himself? Do you see the certainty that we have that in Christ, our sin has been dealt with and we stand righteous, innocent, before God. Uh, we've seen over the last few chapters, Paul affirming that despite the difficulties he faces, he does not lose heart. Uh, despite his body weakening uh, and failing, he's confident. And it's because God has reconciled Paul in Christ. Paul is confidently living the reconciled life because he knows the certainty that his skin has been dealt with and he is righteous before God. 
And I think that's why Paul urges the Corinthians, be reconciled to God. Because God has done it all. They just need to trust that it's true. And that trust will be seen in how they live their lives. But as we've heard, the Corinthians weren't living in light of the new creation. They were still viewing things from a worldly point of view. And it could be seen in a number of clear examples. Uh, We know from other points in the letter that within the Corinthian church, there was someone who, having turned from their wrongdoing, was still being treated as an outsider. But if God had reconciled this person to himself in Jesus, if God had removed their sin and granted them Christ's righteousness, if they are a new creation in Jesus, then the Corinthians treating this person as an outsider, it's in complete conflict with how God sees them and what he's done. More than that, though, the Corinthians are at risk of alienating themselves from Paul as they bind to the teaching of the so-called Super apostles, false teachers who'd snuck into the church and were presenting a different gospel. And if Paul is Christ's ambassador, well, then they're actually at risk of re-alienating themselves from God. And so Paul makes an urgent appeal. It's not just an official appeal, it's an urgent appeal. And we see that in chapter 6. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says... In the time of my favour I heard you, and in the day of my salvation I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favour. Now is the day of salvation. Uh, Two things to note. Uh, First, it's possible uh, for God's grace to be received in vain. Uh, It's possible to hear the good news that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God, It's possible to hear that good news, maybe even concede it's true, maybe even uh, claim some sort of affinity with it, yet not actually take hold of it, remain unaffected by it. We are saved entirely by God's grace, not by our actions. But if we have received God's grace, it will be seen in how we live. It's what Paul's getting at that we saw last week in chapter 5, verse 10. We all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what's due for the things done in the body. If our lives don't reflect the grace that God has shown, we've received God's grace in vain. We haven't actually received God's grace, which means we aren't united with Christ. We aren't reconciled with God. We remain outside of the new creation and we have no hope of life. And so Paul urges the Corinthians don't receive God's grace in vain. And so the time to respond to God's grace is now. Uh, Living lives that reflect God's grace is not something for the Corinthians to be putting off uh, to their to-do list, to do when, you know, all their other pressing needs are finished. Rather, being reconciled to God in Christ is important and urgent. The Corinthians are at risk of walking away from the reconciliation that God has achieved for them. The cracks are already showing as they distance themselves from Paul, Christ's ambassador, and continue to stop a person who's genuinely sought forgiveness from re-entering their community. The need to be reconciled to God and take hold of the grace that he's given them is urgent and important. Paul wants them to live out the grace that God has shown them. So this morning we've been teasing out Paul's urgent and important instruction for the Corinthians. Uh, 
we've seen over this series that Paul's gospel-shaped life, it might not look impressive from a worldly point of view. In fact, it might look downright insane. But considering the fact of Jesus' death and resurrection, considering that if we trust in Jesus, we can be confident that God has dealt with our sin and that God has reconciled himself to us, and considering that we are defined by the new creation, Paul is calling the Corinthians to be reconciled, to be consistent, to be confident in living lives shaped by the gospel, whatever the consequences might be in worldly terms. They know the gospel is true, so they need to live it, lest they find themselves in the position of blockbuster video, refusing to take hold of an opportunity before them because it just looks too different, too much at odds with their current way of thinking, too foolish, only to be left out in the cold when the opportunity has finally passed by. And it's the same challenge for us today. Uh, the world and its way of thinking continue to be at odds with the good news of Jesus. And the world continues to undermine our confidence in living a gospel-shaped life as worldly thinking can end in people getting ahead, uh, as it can seem more instantly appealing, as it can kind of scratch itches and we think, oh, yeah, that, that does seem better. It does offer more in the short term. But it doesn't. The challenge for us today is the same. Be reconciled. Recognize that Jesus has ushered in the new creation with his death and resurrection and remember the hope that you have in him. Recognize that God has reconciled you to himself and Jesus and made you a part of the new creation. Uh, now, Paul is addressing the Corinthians uh, and he's addressing Corinthian Christians. Uh, but if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, uh, perhaps you're sort of not sure, you're still kind of wondering uh, whether or not you, Jesus is worth following. Uh, there is a call for you to be reconciled to God, uh, to turn and trust in Jesus because he is the only place that there is lasting hope in the face of death. It may be that you haven't really explored who Jesus is, and if you would like to do that, if you'd like to investigate a bit further, there are actually a few of us who are going to be going through Christianity Explored in the coming weeks doing exactly that, exploring who Jesus is. And if that's of interest to you, please let me know. You can come and chat to me afterwards or let us know by the comment card. Or if you've come with someone who regularly attends church, you could let them know and they could also get in touch with me as well. Of course, if you do want to be reconciled to God now, it's really easy. All you need to do is pray. Admit that you've done wrong. Believe that Jesus is God's Christ and commit to following him. It's basically what we're going to do in our confession that Ed's going to lead us in after the sermon. But again, if that's you, we would love to know so that we can help you live in light of the grace that God has shown you in Jesus. But of course, Paul's primary audience here are Christians. They are people who know what Christ has done. And so if that's you this morning, which I suspect is most of us, be reminded of the wonderful exchange. Consider the confidence that we have that comes from knowing that we aren't saved by some legal fiction, that we aren't saved by God just turning a blind eye to our sin, but by Jesus taking on our sin as we are united to him by faith that we are given Jesus' righteousness as we trust in him, as we are united to him. Also, 
that leads us to thinking about how we live in the world. Uh, We rejoice in the reconciliation that we have, that God has achieved for us in Christ, but we are also called to regard people according to the new creation that we are part of. You know, of course, if we are part of the new creation, we will be grieved when people are still held captive by the old creation. It's the sort of attitude that motivated uh, uh, Jim and his friends that uh, Claudia told us about earlier. We will want to see people come to Christ that they too might be reconciled and know the hope of new life. And at the same time, we're not going to be very convincing messengers if we proclaim one thing and live another. And so finally, I think one of the challenges in this passage is to recognise where it is that your life is still shaped by worldly thinking. Are there areas of your life that God has been challenging you to live in line with the grace he's shown you? In particular, given the focus of the passage, are there people you need to be reconciled with? Someone who is a follower of Jesus, particularly someone in our church community that you're alienated from and maybe been withholding fellowship with. Be reconciled. Because to not work at reconciliation, to not uh, live in light of the grace God has shown us, is completely inconsistent with who we are in Christ. Uh, Let's not receive God's grace in vain. Because God has reconciled us to himself in Christ by making him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. God has shown us amazing grace. Uh, So let us take hold of that grace and be reconciled to God. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us in 2 Corinthians. Thank you for the confidence that we can have in the gospel, even when it seems weak and foolish in the eyes of the world. Help us to see with greater and greater clarity the hope and the certainty that we have that in Jesus our sin has been dealt with and we have been reconciled to you all because of your uh, great work for us. Help us to be confident to live lives shaped by the gospel. Amen.